I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin, and this is part two of A Time for Heroes, our 1994 season recap. How are you, Andy? Mate, fantastic. Pumped to be back for part two. Part one was cathartic. Yeah, that's a good word for it. Uh, really appreciate uh, all the feedback from everyone. It, it, it's been very encouraging. We're, we're going to press on with 1994 uh, and look at the, the regular season. And as, as we like to do, we'll start with last year's premiers which was the Broncos in this case, but there's actually not a lot to say about them because every storyline about the Broncos is a prelude to Super League. So you're going to be hearing a lot about the Brisbane season 1994, but let's just keep it to on-field. It was quickly apparent early in the year that something was off with the Broncos. Uh, They'd had to shed a couple of players. There was disharmony in some of their early season results. There were St. George and Parramatta players saying that they were surprised at how much the Broncos were sniping at each other. It's crazy, isn't it? Considering they were back-to-back champs. Yeah. It really is surprising, still Mm. to this day. Yeah. And you could see how far they'd fallen where in June, the match of the round, Canberra versus Brisbane, actually wasn't the match of the round at all. Uh, The Broncos had fallen so far in the way they were playing that they shifted the TV game to Canterbury Norths and, you know, Canberra-Brisbane, which in, in every other fixture is, you know, the absolute marquee was an also-ran. Well, that's such a fall from grace because 93, I remember the, the Canberra-Brisbane game on Friday Night Football when Canberra went 20-10 was an absolute must-see game. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, giant ratings and yeah. I remember it clearly it was a, it was the marquee game of the year. Yeah. And a year later. So uh, among the many reasons for why they fell, w- one of them was a, a charmed injury run that they'd had you know, in those premiership years coming to an end with, with a lot of injury problems early in the year. which It's it's so funny. It's historically basically impossible for teams to overcome that. Yeah. Like, you get two or three key injuries and you, you're basically done. Also, was this the era of the decline of Willie Kahn? It was just, he still had the reputation. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I think it, it's definitely the, the start of it. Because he went from premier... Origin test winger to mm. where's Willie Kahn gone? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was kind of a meteoric rise and fall. I mean, I know he had three or four, you know, good years of being a test and origin player, but he just went off the cliff. I always find it odd when that happens. Yeah, uh, Shannon Hegarty, mm. Jack Ellsgood, just just cliff. But I wouldn't say either of those players no. got anywhere near the heights of Willie Kahn. Like I, I remember the talk in like ninety two, ninety three. It was like you know he was almost up there in, in Renoff in the way he was being. Yeah, so I mean, about. yeah, and um. Well, it was a desire thing or a body thing. Mm. Uh, and it wasn't helped with a dramatic loss of form from Glenn Lazarus, who you know started the season overweight and out of condition. Uh, his form had deteriorated to the point where he was, ended up being dropped and was, was coming off the bench. 
uh, very, very lucky to to make a kangaroo tour that year. Glad he did. Yeah. Uh, it goes back to the old adage, harder to get out of the team than to get in. It would have been a legacy stopper. Yeah. Missed that. Yeah. So, as it turns out, it was just a blip and he got back to best form. But I haven't really, in all the reading I've done, found a, a real reason for the, the form loss other than that, um, you know, lack of condition. Well, he he was known for being an agile big man with a fast play ball his whole career. Mm. So, if you're not agile and a big man yeah. and you just play the ball slow, yeah. what are you? Yeah, fair point. Uh, the, the other big story about Brisbane that year, who who you know did go on to to scrape a place in in the semi-finals and and won a semi-final game, so the the season wasn't a complete disaster, just uh, a real drop off from the previous two years. But they actually lost the World Club Challenge to Wigan, which was played in Brisbane mid-year. So great time for Wigan to get Brisbane. Yeah, it was probably one of the last victories of a. English club. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, it was the last World Club Challenge until 97. In we've got, <laughs> Yeah, don't worry. We've got an episode on the 97 World Club Challenge. Um, but yeah, so Wigan had a 20-14 to 14 victory there, lead, leading to an ugly scene in, in the dressing room after the match uh, when Paul Morgan uh, had, had some harsh words to say about the refereeing performance uh, and told John Quayle the, the league was run by a bunch of crooks, <laughs> to which John Quayle called Ken Arthurson over and said, say that in front of my chairman. <laughs> which uh, which kind of shows you the, the tenor of the time and, and the, the way that relationship was heading. You forget how uh, mafia-like rugby league administration was and is. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, if you get the displeasure of the king, you could be, you could be ousted. Um, so, so that leads us to Canberra. Before we talk about their on-field, we're going to spend some time just talking about that squad. But it was almost a reversal of fortunes between Canberra and Brisbane. They'd had a pretty horrible couple of years with injuries themselves. Uh, and Brought a young man in, thrown out of tears. Uh, we've got more on that coming up soon, Andrew. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> um and actually, they, they'd had injury problems basically throughout their whole run. So their, their big six from, you know, 89 onwards, Daly, Clyde, Stewart, Meninga, Belcher, and Steve Walters. Steve Walters was the only one who didn't miss at least the equivalent of a year's worth of football because of an injury. Mm. Bradley Clyde had had one season since 88 where he played more than 14 club games. Insanity. That's how good was the guy yeah. that he could get away with it. I know, I know. Uh, and this was also the the period where you know I, I think in many years ninety four was like Laurie Daly is at, as at his absolute peak, but at the same time it was when his knee was you know basically falling apart, and he became a very different player in the latter half of his career because of it. But we, we see with the grand final, uh, he still had it. Yeah, yeah, he still had it to to, to turn on when he wanted. Yeah. Later on, he couldn't turn it on. Yeah, definitely. And then of course the the biggest one of all was was the one that brought that Toronto boy to tears with. Uh, Ricky Stewart injured late in the 93 season. Jumped up uh, with a horrendous tackling style, which he, he wouldn't cop from his own players now. Mm. Uh, got brushed off with the upper body, ankle snapped. And the fact that it was, was in you know a meaningless thrashing of Parramatta. Why and, wasn't he off the field? Yeah. I, I could have murdered Sheen. What was the score at the time? Like 60 nil yeah. or something? Yeah, so like, it's like, it was, all their stars should have been off. Yeah. The aftermath of that, when, they were, when they were, Sticky was involved in the uh, understudies playing Steve Stone and Trevor Shadell, and they were trying to sell the fact that it was going to be sweet because Sticky was guiding them. It's like, yeah. It's over. Mm. Uh, and that is really the, the one that got away in terms of that 
you know, much anticipated grand final that we never got, Canberra mm. versus Brisbane. In lucky for St George, that wouldn't have been there. Yeah. So you know, on top of dealing with a bad injury run, they were also dealing with the repercussions of having to rebuild their squad. Uh, please imagine me doing giant quotation marks <laughs> uh, in the wake of, of the salary cap dramas. That... <laughs> let's, let's, let's talk about this. They had, what, 92 salary cap uh, debacle? Yeah. Or ni- 91. 91. Yeah. Uh, so 92 was a write-off, yeah. right? By 94, they've got, what, 12 internationals and about eight future internationals. Yeah. So th- this is this is what... When I was reading all these stories, you know, during 94 of Canberra players and coaches talking about how they had to, you know, rebuild and, you know, get some new blood in and the salary cap tore us apart. And I, I was I was falling for it for a while. I was like, yeah, they, they did a really good job, <laughs> like, getting that squad back. And then, um, okay, so here were the internationals at Canberra in 1992 after they'd had to start shedding players and, and rebuilding. So they had... One former international in Gary Belcher, who, you know, he was so past he hadn't played a test since 1991. <laughs> you know, Brad Clyde, Laurie Daly, Sean Hoppy, Mal Meninga, Ricky Stewart, Steve Walters, current internationals, uh, Jason Croker, David Ferner, Brett Mullins, and Ken Nagus, all future internationals. So, uh, yeah. At least good, they were young, though. Yeah, good, good rebuild. You know, well, well done, Canberra. You, you look at the um, you look at the squad for the '94 Grand Final. Brett Hetherington's on the bench, and yeah. like, and he's he's the weak link. Yeah, and yeah. he's like a gun. Yeah. Um, but let's let's give Tim Tim Sheens and you know Canberra administration credit for the players they did bring in. You know, one of the key knocks, especially once Lazarus left, was they were a bit soft in the forwards. Well, bringing Quentin Pongia, who, as we're recording this, has just recently passed away. Uh, Legend, so legendary hard man. Big loss to the game. Uh, bringing Quentin Pongia and John Lomax, that's one way to address a, a soft forward pack. I mean, <laughs> I, I always laugh when I think about how hard these guys were, especially John Lomax. Yeah. Um, Pongia was the harder hitter. Lomax was just the harder lunatic. Yeah. <laughs> and then a bench of Brett Hetherington and David Wesley. You know, <laughs> yeah. It wasn't Wesley at Papua New Guinea International? Yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, but then they had like a young Ruben Wiki, and yeah, like, so that they actually bet well on everyone. They yeah, they bet exactly. On. Getting Noah Andrewku in, you know, the original Fijian flyer. Yeah, exactly. Um, from the Stanley Jean School of uh, birth, <laughs> death, and marriage <laughs> record keeping, like, <laughs> like we, we were talking about it off air, like watching that grand final. Like, how is he not forty in nineteen ninety four? I don't want to preempt the grand final talk, but I mean, uh, I remember him debuting with his like twinkle toed stepping and just like bamboozling guys. Mm. The grand final, he's running over guys like semi red runner. Yeah, the strength of the guy. Yeah, I don't remember him being as good as he was. No, he was a beast. Yeah. No doubt about it. It's crazy to me now looking at that team and and at the end of at the end of this nineteen ninety four recap, we're going to spend some time putting them, you know, where the, sorting out where they belong in the pantheon of great backlines. But it's crazy to me when I read stories from nineteen ninety four, quotes like this: "There are rumblings in Canberra that the Raiders are building a team to lift the Winfield Cup from Brisbane." When I look at that team, I'm like rumblings like this is like a clear premiership <laughs> team but you have to remember that a lot of these players were just making their reputations yeah yeah um so l- let's start with talking about the ones who already had uh the big three at that that time this is how good that side is like mal Meninga isn't in your big three <laughs> yeah. but but here's the thing it's a different era you can have squads that had like eight be a big eight you know but now it's only ever a big three because yeah. salary caps actually mm. 
semi-enforced. Yeah. So Ricky Stewart, I think at that point in the game, was the the very top of the tree. 93, he was the best player in the world. Yeah, I, I think so too. And and with a, a lot to prove in 1994, not only because of the disappointment of 1993, but with the fact that he still hadn't been picked to play halfback for Australia in Australia. So after replacing Langer on the 1990 Kangaroo Tour, Langer had got his way back uh, to be the, the number one choice. It's pre-94 Tour, so 94 Tour made him as a you know, top echelon yeah. guy. So we're, you know, we're still in the, in the growth phase. So yeah, 1994 was probably the peak of Langer versus Stewart in the press and the debate over with the Kangaroo Tour coming up, the debate over who should be the halfback. I've got to say, it, it seems that the opinion of the public and the players had swayed over to Ricky Stewart to the point that in the players' poll, Ricky Stewart got 69% of the vote as who should be test halfback, laying a poll 29. If you look at the, the, the state of the game, as we said uh, on episode one, uh, from the 5-meter rule to the 10-meter rule, Daly and Stewart were, were, even better than today, passing two passes across the entire field, basically, yeah, for, for width. Yeah. And it was unheard of, mm. and it shaped Joey Johns. But it, it still hasn't been duplicated. The, no. That seven and six, as far as organizers go, and one of them was a gun running player as well, uh, has never been matched. Yeah, but but just think about, and it, it's it's being talked about a lot. I'm not revealing anything new, but when you actually look at the numbers, the the dominance of Brisbane and Canberra in that era. So going back to that rugby league week players poll, I'm just going to read out all the names of the the players who were listed at each position. So at fullback, you had Brett Mullins getting seventy percent. Tim Brasher, Matthew Ridge, Matt Sears, Julian O'Neill. Winger, Willie Kahn getting 67%. Sean Hoppy, Michael Hancock, Ken Nagus. Center, Steve Renoff getting 70%. Then Paul, Paul McGregor and Mal Meninga. 5'8", Laurie Daly, 64%. Then Terry Lamb, Kevin Walters, Greg Florimo and Cliff Lyons. Halfback, Ricky Stewart getting 63%. Then Alan Langer, Jason Taylor. Lock, Bradley Clyde, 76%. Then Brad Fitless, Mark Glanville, Brad Nakai and Jason Smith, the other named players. Second row, David Fairley, 33%. Paul Sirenen, Dean Pace, Steve Menzies, Gary Larson, Paul Harrigan, and Brad Clyde polling as well. Prop, Paul, Paul Harrigan, Glenn Lazarus, Ian Roberts. Hooker, Steve Walters, Jim Sedaris, Ben Elias, Kerrod Walters. The, the dominance of Canberra and Brisbane players in, in that and how much they dominated almost every position, like getting 60 70% of the vote. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. So, so just for good measure, in, in that year, Brad Clyde was polled as the best player, getting 25%. Then you had Laurie Daly, Ricky Stewart, Steve Renoff, uh, Paul Harrigan, Cliff Lyons, Brett Mullins, and Alan Langer getting the, the minors. Just on Brad Clyde, I would like to hear some actual football analysts break down on what made him so great. Mm. Because universally... No one argues about it. No. Was it his motor? Was it his uh, go forward? So, but universally across the board, mm. Brad Clyde was the man. Yeah. Just as a kid, you don't really understand. No. I, I, I kind of went along with it because everyone said he was the best player in the world. So I was like, oh, he must be the best player in the world. I remember he was always back with the first hit up and like, yeah. so that was more a motor thing. But mm. I mean. But I mean, he, he was definitely mobile. It's not like he was just, you know, a battering ram, like, you know, up and down. Like he was, you could see that. Yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to see a breakdown of the stats or something because yeah. he wasn't breaking the line like you know Steve Menzies was or you know that sort of thing. And mm. but universally, yeah, admired as one of the greats. Mm. 
But but so that's where we're at in in '94. Canberra and Brisbane absolutely dominating, and Ricky Stewart gradually winning the mantle as you know the best halfback and one of the best players in the game. I, I said '94 was the peak of talk about Langer and Stewart, but I, I think I misspoke there because I think the actual peak uh, took place on the fourth of August 1993. So I'm just just going to read this out uh, see if you agree with me, sir. Ricky Stewart is one of the greatest players in the world and can do everything just as good, if not better, than Langer. First of all, Mr. Tusker wasn't being disloyal to Alan Langer. He was just telling the truth with his story about Ricky. Ricky was on two Man of the Match awards and going for his hat-trick against West when he was given a rest, since they were flogging the Magpies by so much. Langer fans think Ricky wouldn't be able to play against class players like Jared McCracken. But what did Langer do in the tests? He jinked back inside a couple of times. As Mr. Tusker said, imagine the havoc there would be if Menenga, Clyde, Khan and Linda were running wide and Ricky cutting out six men with his 35-metre passes. Face it, Langer lovers, Stewart should be the Australian halfback. A. Paskin, Toronto, New South Wales. <laughs> so I, I, I should add, Andrew, that, that actually got letter of the week in, in the Rugby League week. So congrats on that. 13-year-old uh, psychopath. So, so tell me about your, your mindset at the time. I remember, like, uh, not being. I've, I've come around to Alan Langan as an adult that he probably is the better player. Does more than just jinx back inside a couple of times. As a child, I was like, "What is this bloke doing? He like, he can't kick, he can't pass. Uh, he keeps getting tackled on the fifth, trying to jink back inside." I was just like, I couldn't believe it. I was like, <laughs> and, the, "And these idiots went him in the Australian side when this guy is dominating the game." I couldn't believe it. So I must write a letter to the to the editor. But uh, that goes to show what sort of bloke I was. And still am. Well, I, I want to stay on this because you've, you've got some form in this area. <laughs> you, you you were very in, invested in, in rugby league at the time uh, and particularly in, in your favourite player, Ricky Stewart. <laughs> so uh, long-time listeners might have heard this before, but I, I really want you to tell me uh, what you would do if, for instance, there was doubt over whether Ricky Stewart <laughs> might be playing that week. I think this was 94 I did this, um, and I just thought it was the most normal thing in the world to do. So I'm sitting at home one day, and the, around the grounds, something was on, and um, they're saying, like, uh, Stuart might be back for next week or something like that, and I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, I've got to find out. I mean, like, you know, it's a whole week away, and I can't wait that long. So I thought, I'll ride down to the local post office and um, find the phone number in Canberra for the Canberra Raiders trainer, Sean McRae, who was mentioned quite heavily in the media at the time, because he was a... Australian trainer. Lo and behold, the McRae's in Canberra. Give them a ring up and um, S and someone McRae and a middle-aged woman answers the phone. I said, uh, hello, I'm calling from uh, New South Wales. I just want to know if um, you have any information if Ricky Stewart's playing this weekend. <laughs> and she said, you've called our house. <laughs> and I said, look, I'm really sorry about that, but you know, I just got to know, like, you know, she, she, she went around and, no, he's out. <laughs> So I've got to go. All right, no help. No help from Mrs. McRae. Do you remember if he ended up playing? I don't actually, but um, <laughs> I remember telling that story to my friends and then going, "What the bloody hell did you do that for?" And like I was like, you know, so I give him a ring. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I think it's it's. I would never have thought to do that. So <laughs> I got to got to hand it to you. I I think it's genius. <laughs> That's that's a that's a troubled kid, <laughs> but it's it's funny because when you first told me that story, like after I'd finished, like you know, getting myself off the floor from, <laughs> from cracking up, 
I thought like I couldn't have named a trainer of a team in nineteen ninety four, you know? Well, it would have been like ninety five or six for you at that age when you were fourteen. Yeah, yeah, but but still even then, like I don't think it was something I would have you know, you hear about, you know, like Ronnie Palmer or whatever, you know, you, yeah. You hear names, but like I wouldn't have It was only because it was always like he was in the Australian squad and they'd say Bomber McRae and Well this is when when I was reading you know preparing for for this this episode reading all the old media from the time it was astounding how much Sean McRae was in the press yeah he was a key part of the squad yeah yeah and you know Tim Sheens gave gave him all the credit for it there was a lot of talk that Canberra's training methods were were advanced compared to other teams um there there was a kind of myth that they were getting uh help from the AIS <laughs> that's going to be one of the great conspiracy theories so i think they were sharing facilities early in the piece but do, by... do you mean that hugely successful organization the ais that had three bronze medals in 48 years so by 94 that, that they were completely separate so <laughs> the, the fact he did a good job when he had people ringing his house um Meanwhile, I, I BMX down to the uh, post office to retrieve the number, <laughs> call it from the phone box like a Unabomber. But so, uh, and and then it, this obsession effectively killed your active support for Canberra for a while. A couple of years after, well, this is ninety four as well. Um, we'll. We'll probably get to this game. The uh, the Brett Mullins four try game went in there with a, a kid from school that um, broke my shoulder playing football. Ninety three kilo. Uh, Kid in Year Seven. Thanks very much. Um, <laughs> but uh, we went to the game, and I had a I had a little system where I'd sneak down into the players' area, the visiting players' area. So the security guards weren't too bright in those days. Now, these days they're geniuses, obviously. But they're like, there's just some bloke just like looking around, like off of the pixies. So I'd just be in my, my jersey, and I'd just just walk straight down to the players' area, right near the where the players run out. And I'd just sit, and there's, there's loads of spare seats in the away away teams area. So I sat down. I was in my Canberra jersey. They thought I was probably a relative or something. So I'm getting all the autographs. Everyone's signing the cards. Laurie Daly, uh, Mal, heaps of guys signed. It was awesome. And I'm standing there in a in a Canberra Raiders hat, Canberra Raiders socks, and a New South Wales Blues jersey with Stuart and Seven on the back. And Stuart's standing there doing nothing, sort of like uh, he might be looking at a bit of paper or something or a clipboard. He had like Socconi running shoes with his socks and his full kit on. So he's ready to play way early, like two hours early, but with his Sokoni running shoes, they were odd-looking shoes. And I said, oh, Ricky Stewart, I'm a yeah, really big fan. Yeah, would you mind signing my cards? Turns slightly, looks at me and goes, after the game, mate, walks off. <laughs> Devastated. <laughs> so after that, I still supported them for like 94. And then by 95, I'm going to about 15. I'm like, God, the fucking prick. Like, <laughs> I'm going to sign my cards. Like Steve Walters signed my cards in the car park. He's driving mm. his Saab with his missus. He must have driven to the game from Canberra. I don't know why. I I I flagged Steve Walters down and he signed through the car window. Yeah. So so we actually uh, had someone recount that story to Laurie Daly. A third party did it on our behalf uh, recently. Friend of the show uh, and Fox Sports personality Andrew Barney Barnett. He's yeah. a stand-up comedy buddy of mine. Great bloke. So uh so he he. T- recounted the story of, of your har- harassment of the McRae family. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so Laurie, you know, laughed with bemusement and said, really, haha, you forget how big of tragic some of these people really are. <laughs> that hurts. <laughs> Laurie on the money as usual. Yeah. 
We had the pleasure of meeting Laurie after the the, the professor's late yeah. taping. Great bloke. What an absolute legend of a bloke. Remember I was saying to you how proud I was of myself that I, I never bailed him up at Northbridge Anytime Fitness? Yeah. Later on, I realized I already had bailed him up. <laughs> I had to tell him that he did a gig with my mate, James Smith, who's a comedian at this corporate gig, and he goes, oh, yeah, right, good. So I, I had bailed him up. <laughs> so that, that pride was... Yeah. <laughs> was non-founded yeah but what a great bloke he was so we mentioned it um you know at the start of our first episode 94 as being this high watermark when when we told laurie about what we were doing um and we mentioned we were starting with a 94 recap you could see his eyes light up and he, he actually said oh i think that was that was about the best time for rugby league it was you know it was really good era and you could see his his him deflate when we mentioned we were going to be spending a year talking about Super League. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, a face like a smack bum mm-hmm. after we mentioned that. We've said on this show many times, like, one of the great rugby league guys because, A, near immortal, B, just a genuine bloke. Yeah. Yeah. So, as we said, 94, he, he missed quite a bit of football with that knee injury, which would, would go on to play his career. And it was the start of, or maybe not even the start, it probably been happening happening for a couple of seasons, but a lot of talk, uh, among fans and sections of the media that he was like not putting in for the Raiders. He was saving himself for the, for the big representative matches. Like, uh, that was, um, I think that was unfair. Mm. I don't think he was that sort of guy. No, I don't, I don't think so at all. I think he was struggling. Yeah, yeah. And, and then you, you had the push and pull of country wanted him to play, the Raiders didn't want him to play, and you know he, he, he was damned either way, basically. Would you say that City Country was Mickey Mouse at that stage? Yeah, it, it totally was. Um, I've had it for later in the show, but we might as well talk about it now. Yeah. Uh, so Kevin Neal uh, basically came over this Laurie Daly selection furor uh, where he played country, got hurt, and, you know, missed the, the Raiders' next game. Kevin Neal came out and said, like, why are we doing this? It's not a genuine selection trial. It, it's passe. And, you know, that was echoed by, you know, several in the media. And yet we persisted with it for another... 20 plus years i was one of the guys saying we need to keep it going <laughs> and i understand the sentiment but that's all it is yeah the sentiment it wasn't a yeah. genuine game since you know the early 90s at, at latest again with the mickey mouse once it's over the mickey mouse cliff it's yeah. done because yeah. it could have been something great yeah well but no because it had its day it served a very important place in in rugby league for a long time but by by the 90s and you know even the 80s you, there was no one being picked for Australia or New South Wales from the bush anymore. But like, still, it could have been like Origin, where you, the Origin... And I guess the argument is like, you know, Queensland, you know, laugh at blokes bashing themselves up for city country only to, you know, play together, you know, the next week for Origin. You can make the same case for New South Wales and Queensland then feeding into Australia. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, we'll have, we'll have more Laurie Daly talk as our discussion of the season goes on. I think it was Pete Daly. Yeah, I, I think so too. He, he was my, as I told him, uh, when, when we met him, he was my, my absolute hero at that point. Some people are tragic, mate. <laughs> um, so, so let's talk about uh, some, some of the young guns and less established blokes in that team, starting with Brett Mullen. So it, it's, it's easy to forget that at the start of 1994, it, it wasn't even a guarantee that he was going to be starting fullback for the Raiders, let alone how he ended the year. He was an enigmatic centre in 93. Mm. Winger. Yeah. And so it's, it's not like he came from nowhere. Like he played played for country in 92, origin reserve in 93. So he was in the mix. He was a known prospect. 
But he went from being a kind of question mark, and that's in part to do with some of his off-field stuff, which could have ended him him being booted by the Raiders at one point early in his career. What about the fact that we know as kids that he's up to no good without any actual stories about it? Yeah. So, like, how bad have you got to be for it to seep through that deep? Yeah, yeah. You know, obviously known as a talented player, but question marks at the start of the year to by the end of the year being talked about in the same breadth as all these blokes who'd been established for years. Like, he was his name was just right up there with anyone else in the game. The guy outshone Steve Renoff. Yeah. And if you can do that, yeah. you're doing okay. And watching Steve Renoff highlights for that year, like he was still well and truly Steve Renoff. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god. Ninety four was like yeah. peak Renoff. Yeah. Um it's funny both of them in, in that same that same era, that same Australian team. Like Renoff like had the Gaznia kind of like gear shift. Yeah. Mullins more the Langlands kind of swerve. But, it was compared to Steve Rogers a lot. Yeah, yeah. We give Great Britain and England a hard time. How the hell are you going to stop those guys? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, think about it. But so 90, 1994 was very much the coronation of, of Brett Mullins. You know, it wasn't necessarily a long reign. I don't want to rehash our many Hall of Fame arguments, but uh, one of one of the, the most exciting times for me watching rugby league was, was Brett Mullins in his pomp. Like Nixon with the racial comments on the on the on the Nixon tapes, you're on record arguing for Brett Mullins not to be a Hall of Famer. <laughs> I don't think I ever said he's not a Hall of Famer. I, I had, I think, legitimate question marks. Don't want to rehash it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's, let's cut it off now. Anyone who who is interested can go back and listen to it. But we'll, we'll be going for another three hours if we, if we start it now. Um, so. He he went from an eighty to one shot to win the Rothmans at the start of the year to into like almost equal favoritism like by the end. Wish I had a piece of that. Um, of of co- course, many people had a piece on David Fairley uh, <laughs> get, getting the, uh, the the early mail. Um, do you reckon the mail? The, do you reckon the mail come from his stable hands? <laughs> his giant horse head. Um, you know, and and going on that run, eleven tries in three games. Well, Larry Daly brought that up yeah. on his own bat. Yeah, uh, recount of the conversation when, when Michael and I bailed up Larry Daly the other night. Yeah. Um, talking about ninety four and Brett Mullins. How was Brett Mullins? And, he, and Daly goes, he scored eleven tries in three games that year. <laughs> like he was yeah. blown away by it. I know, eh? Yeah. Uh, for anyone who thinks that now the RLD and Laurie Daly are best mates. We've now literally recounted every single thing that was said between us and Laurie Daly. So. Thanks to Andrew Barnett for setting that yeah. up. Um, so, so one thing I want to say about Brett Mullins as fullback was very, very perceptive uh, or very interesting comment from from Tim Sheens who, who was talking about his emergence and having Ken Nagus there at the same time coming after you know a very successful era with Gary Belcher and Chica Ferguson. When Gary was there, the players were always confident he would take the kick and bring it back. If you have a good fullback who gets involved, it's as if you're playing with 14 men. If not, you're playing with 12. We always had 14 men with Belcher and Chicka. Now with Brett and Chicka too, Nagus, it's the same. See, Belcher was a gun in his own right. Yeah. He just, uh, he wasn't Brett Mullins like in that like uh, length of the field stuff. But as a fullback, he was amazing. But it's funny because you think of fullbacks in that era. And yes, you had your absolute stars of the game, like Gary Belcher, Gary Jack. But... Teams could carry a fullback that was like just okay, just serviceable, just solid. It wasn't like the glamour position it is today. It, it, I mean, this is the actual start of that. Yeah. It's like everyone needs a Brett Mullins now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I put Julian O'Neill in the Belcher class. Really good, really solid, 
good player. And Mullins was just like a, yeah. a second runoff. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Julian O'Neill was a class player. It would have been interesting to see if, if he, you know, had a head on his shoulders, whether, where, where he would have ended <laughs> up. The old cranium. <laughs> so Mullins was late to the piece in, in making his Origin debut when both New South Wales and Queensland selectors went with one of the most conservative um, selections for game one. There was only one player who hadn't played in the previous year's season uh, series among the 34 players picked. Um, when New South Wales lost, with the likes of, of Nagus and Mullins um, and a whole bunch of, of other good young players coming through, it led to an outcry for some new blood. Do, do blue selectors jerk off to the word incumbent? Yeah. I mean, like, they've never, ever gone out of the box. Mm. So they they were forced to in game two, uh, not so much because of the, the media and public clamouring, but because Bob Fulton decided that he <laughs> didn't have the Australian team he wanted yet. So he basically demanded new blood in the New South Wales team, uh, got his wish as as was the way things were done in those days. And, and so Mullins and Nagus both made their, their debuts in game two. Mullins and Nagus felt a marionette string on, their, <laughs> on the back of their neck and uh, they were fine. Um. So so let's move on to Ken Nagus and we'll, we'll do him and him and Nandruku as a package deal because that was just electric having both of those guys in that team. See, I was big on Nandruku after his debut, and he was just bamboozling guys with the with the twinkle toes. And when Kenny Nagus came on the scene, I was like, well, he's not as good as Nandruku. And then hang on, this guy's an absolute Ferrari. Yeah, poetry. Yeah, as opposed to the um the battering ram and the and the footwork, he was just just. Swerve and, and yeah. speed, and it's funny because at the start of the year, it was it was viewed that he was a, a real contender for the Raiders' fullback job. And he would have been majestic. That, that's, what, that's what you wonder, like where those two careers go if they had, you know, broken it down that way. You, you'd think Mullins probably would have ended up playing center in in '95 with Malgon. Yeah, it's embarrassment of riches. Yeah, especially considering when Nagus was injured for. Part way, part way through the year, Albert Fulavai came in, who was also good, and, and there was talk that Nagus would have to, you know, get back into the team through reserve grade. So good was he going? How good was the Raiders' reserve grade team? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, no, and Andrew ex- experienced a bit of second year syndrome in 1994. Uh, had some injury problems. A- appeared a bit jaded in the press. Wasn't the easygoing kind of fella that everyone loved in, in 1993. He put on a bit of size in '94. He mm. was a lot skinnier in '93. Uh, and there was talk of a contract dispute as well. He wasn't happy with his deal at the Raiders, so it, it took him quite a while to get, you know, get his way into the season. Um, and didn't he get into it yeah. towards the end? <laughs> uh, another player who really emerged in 1994 was Jason Croker, who probably the unluckiest, um, you know, kangaroo omission that year. I remember being really upset by that. You know, nepotism, one of my worst things in the world, but. They were vindicated with David Furner's career. Yeah, I mean, but they would have been equally been vindicated with Jason Croker there, True. especially as a utility. Desperately unlucky. Um, so Tim Sheens was was pushing his case from very very early in the piece, and you know, especially talking about him as that utility option. When you look at Jason Croker's career, the spread of games he played three hundred eighteen games. Uh, I'm going to read out by position. So. 10 games off the bench, which that in itself, for someone who's considered a utility's utility, to play 318 games and only 10 of them off the bench. Amazing. One game at fullback, 44 games at wing, 
48 at centre, 58 at 58, 1 at prop, 49 at second row, 108 at lock. Amazing. So my question's kind of answered in, in that breakdown, but do you think he's a natural lock? Do you think that's his best position? Um, back row anywhere. Yeah. It's like towards the end, at the end he was playing middle yeah. anyway, but uh, I just love the guy and respect him so much for holding the team together towards the end when it was just diabolical yeah and they had these disgusting jerseys <laughs> did and, you mean the oracle era yeah and like he was the glue yeah otherwise the whole thing was going to come down mm. and, and also the story of him holding himself up on the goalposts horizontally with his arms <laughs> i mean <laughs> the core strength of this bloke <laughs> here's an example of what you get when you when you uh work as hard as you can you know, and get the maximum out of your body so when he finished he was like a just a giant ball of muscle mm. where some guys like Anthony Milford looks like a year five kid. Yeah. He's been playing eight years of first grade, yeah. you know what I mean? Because, yeah, he was picked quite a lot at wing in, in those early years. Well, he was a lot smaller back then. Yeah. I don't think he was much of a winger, to be honest. He's just solid. Yeah, yeah. I mean, winger, he's he's kind of plugged in, you know, doing a job rather than, you know, playing to his strengths. But I wanted to ask you this. So, you know, he's he's probably, Locke's probably his best position. Is that true of any genuine utility? <laughs> well, I wanted to bring up before we were talking like last episode about um, Brad Fittler. He, he was he's in the the rugby league lock of the year discussion. I, th- I think he won it that year in '94. Oh, uh, yeah. So, so I think he was center '92, '93, lock '94, something like. I that. I loved him as a lock. Yeah. And I wonder. I would like to know what he thought his best position was. I can tell you because I've got that quote. Uh, well, so in 1994, when there was talk, uh, which which we're going to get to as, as to whether. Malman Engel was going to keep his place in the Australian team with Brad Fittler, with Steve Renoff. There was talk that, you know, Fittler might, you know, be there as a centre, but then they ended up picking him at lock. And he said, he actually said, I think it's my best position. And I, I really think from here on out, this is where I'll end up playing all my footy. I wish he did. He was great at 5'8", though. It, it's so. He had the size and he had the, he had the, the lower body strength. Yeah. And, oh. What a crazy career he had. My all-time favourite Australian team was the era when the back row was Lidner, Clyde, and Fittler at lock. Mm. That was absolutely killer. It had every every type of back rower covered. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to ask about utilities is, does the, the hooker half thing, does that count as a utility? I've always hated it. Yeah. Mark Soden started it. Mm. In my view, it should have ended there. But uh, I really hated the bastardising the halfback position. Yeah. <laughs> And I always think in most respects, or in most instances, it's a waste of the bench spot in the representative teams anyway, you know? Agreed. But in saying that, I think Craig Gow was a better hooker. Yeah. Well, yeah, but that's the thing. You're either one or the other. Yeah. But the picking the, the guy and calling him a utility when he's just either a halfback or a hooker. You want a utility like Jason Croker. Yeah. You can literally play. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway. that, when I think utility, that, that's what I think of a Jason Croker. Uh, and we've talked about the pack a bit. We, we mentioned... David Fernard. Let let's not forget that he he did emerge. It wasn't as if like just winning the Clive Churchill put him on the plane and nothing else. You know, he he'd been talked about throughout that year as you know a, a real chance. He was a tough guy and he had actual footwork, yeah. which was quite new. Mm. Yeah. So with, with him, with Pongier and and Lomax and that you know really good bench of Hetherington and Wesley, like. That the pieces were all in place. Hetherington was like he's a definition of what they used to describe as raw bone. Yeah, <laughs> wouldn't like to tackle him. John Daly mullet. 
Um, the, the, other, the last player I want to talk about before we move to the Mal Meninga farewell tour is, is, <laughs> is Ruben Wiki and specifically the, the off-field issue that dogged him all year, which was the, the contract drama, uh, the, the tug of war between Canberra and Auckland. He, he got out of that with the inverse homesickness. Yes. Uh, so um, his, his teammates were calling him Ruben Witch City. <laughs> what a G up. <laughs> so, yes. So he, he signed a, a contract with Auckland, then went on to sign a, a different contract with Canberra. <laughs> uh, he, his argument was that the, the stipulation in his Auckland contract was, I'm signing, but I, I'm just signing that I'll come to you if I can't come to terms with Canberra, which... Even among rugby league contracts, I don't think I've seen a clause that ludicrous. It's possible. <laughs> now, did the Canberra administration get around to signing this one? Unlike the, yeah, um, yeah, Brit- unlike the, the Wayne Bennett <laughs> contract, yeah, they did. Uh, and went to great lengths to, to prevent the Auckland uh, contract from, from happening to the point where they changed Ruben Wiki's phone number. So the Auckland officials couldn't contact him. Fairly cool. uh, When asked about this story, Kevin Neal said, why wouldn't we? Auckland have harangued him for six months before and since his signing. But what about the fact that they've got to change his number for him? He's incapable <laughs> of bringing up the phone company. But I remember when this was happening, I was going like, what are Auckland doing trying to brand an operate? Like, we've got like every international in the world and they want one good young kid. He he was, uh, I remember thinking about the name when I heard it in the in the team. So I'm like, Ruben, we get a weird name, Ruben. And then like, I saw him play, I'm like, Jesus. He's smashing guys from the outset. It's like... Uh, so... His his argument for for why he wouldn't go is that he was um, browbeaten or you know lent on to to sign the Auckland contract. That that argument was weakened by the fact that he actually posted his contract to New Zealand from Canberra. So yeah, had had some time in the interim too. <laughs> uh, and you know his his final word on the subject was, "I won't be playing with the Warriors." I admit I've messed things up by signing with two clubs and I'm embarrassed by what has happened. But what I do know is that I want to stay in Canberra. It's irrefutable uh, evidence. And if you want, if you want to stay there, just, <laughs> just stay there. But uh, this is not even in the top 10 of like rugby league combat, contract debacles. No. So like, you know, as soon as someone doesn't want to be there, well, what does want to be? Yeah. Just, uh, Brian Carney in Titans is yeah. number one. But what are rugby league clubs supposed to do? Because that's the thing. If he doesn't want to be there, he's not going to put in. You might as well let him go. But then you let him go, and then you, you you know just paving the way for future backflips and clauses and everything else we've seen. If I was a rugby administrator, I'd make him sit out the year. Mm. Okay, right. Yeah, you'll learn the value of a contract, yeah. <laughs> boys. Uh, so so let let's turn to Mal. Uh, you know, playing his his last season, and as I said, there were there were genuine question marks at the start of the year as to whether he belonged in the Queensland and Australian teams. We both love Mal more than anybody in this podcast, but. What an absolute! It was a fairy tale. The yeah. trope. It is the trope. Yeah, he uh, finished it perfectly on every level. Yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously Queensland had the series defeat, but you know that was in no way because of him. Like the the stat showed that in in game one he was you know one of the most heavily involved players. Obviously played a key part in the final try. Um, more than justified his selection. Yeah, uh, and and as a, apart from anything else, like he got the ending he deserved, especially with the, the kangaroo tour. And we still kept hearing about it even in that year. He come back from these broken arms. Yeah. I'm so glad we're still hearing about that. <laughs> uh, but one one corner where the the um, criticism made its way into you know a bit of tension was Wally Lewis, Queensland coach, not expressly backing him. He was on a, a Channel Seven program and asked of of whether Mal would be 
in the Queensland team. So Wally Lewis wasn't a selector of the team. So he said this, Everybody in the team's under the microscope from the selectors. We can only, I suppose, bank on the performances on the field from him. If the selectors believe that's good enough, then fine. I'm out there to coach the football team. And if Mal's in it, well, certainly. You know my opinion that he can hold himself in state of origin football pretty well. Well, I'll coach him. If he's not in the side, I'll coach the guy who's replacing him. I'll leave that decision to the selectors. Is there anybody that handled the media worse than Wally Lewis? <laughs> like, from the 80s till yeah. like, recently, mm. terrible. Now he's, now he's good. But I, I mean, I, I can see what he was trying to get at. Like, just saying, it's not my decision. I'm the coach. I'll coach him. But you know what rugby league players are like? Yeah. One, one little perceived slight and, it, the, and the whole deck of cards comes it in. It was always going to be that way. And I, I, didn't, I, I meant to do some research in this, but I didn't. But I always get the sense that, that Wally and Mal were never, like, super tight. Yeah, maybe a bit of, like, ego. I'm better than you. You're better than, like, you're not better than me. Obviously, a lot of, like, mutual respect and shared successes and all the rest of it. I don't think it's a feud. Yeah. But I don't know, just the sense I get is they, you know, di- the, different types. I'm just happy they both made immortality because mm. they both deserved it. Yeah. Great ending for Mal. And, and that whole year became, you know, one one long farewell tour with, with, with a lot of highs al- along the way. Uh, one of the lows uh, came at a, a tribute night to, to Mal Meninga. And I'll just read this. This, this is from a, a Sherlock column. Watson tells me that the performance by former St. George icon Rod Rocket Reddy at the Mal Meninga tribute dinner the other night was about as tasteful as a freak show. The old boy suggested that the Rocket should stick to coaching and leafing through his scrapbook after a foul-mouthed effort as a speaker at the dinner. <laughs> and what's more, said Watson, the whimsical Peter Jacko Jackson wasn't all that much better, telling off-colour honeymoon jokes, which such an occasion could have well done without. Jacko also strayed across the line and into dangerous territory by sniping at one famous guest, former PM Bob Hawke. <laughs> That's awesome. But funnily enough, in that in that same piece, praise was given on uh, on Paul Vorton, who who managed to save proceedings in some way with a with a professional, amusing, uh, you know, a, a speech that matched the occasion. Yeah. So it's it's funny that that couple of years of of media training did its work because it was at a Wally Lewis tribute dinner in 1990 that he got on stage and told a joke about Wally Lewis taking shits in his teammates' dressing rooms as a G-up. You know? <laughs> it's madness. Peter Jackson was the best. Yeah. Uh, and, and so a, a lot of a lot of positivity coming Mal's way. Laurie Daly for Mal's last home game like probably shouldn't have been on the field um, battling an injury, but he said, if it had not have been Mal's farewell game, I would not have played. I really wanted to be a part of it. Mel's such a good bloke. He helped a lot of the guys at Cameron. I wanted to be out there to say thanks. It's awesome. Mm. And uh, Wayne Bennett, with with some very per- perceptive uh, comments. Uh, this this was in the wake of everyone bagging out Mel and you know debating his place in the team. Just about every year in State of Origin, someone says they should get rid of Mel. You watch next year; they'll be saying if only Mel was still there. Yep. And I mean, there are a myriad number of reasons why Canberra haven't won a, a comp since Mal left. He's probably not even the, the chief among them, but the fact is they haven't. They haven't gone back to a grand final. You know what he gave you? We, we talked about this off, off, um, off air the other day, but he was the biggest guy in his position by a long way for a long time. Mm. So, so now everyone's as big as Mal, but back then they weren't. Yeah. So he's always imposing, but he was a winner and he's a leader and he just felt confidence. When, he, when Mal, Mal's in the side, there was confidence. Yeah. You had Steve Renoff there with someone else, not quite as good. Mm. 
Yeah. Steve Reynolds not quite as free to do his thing because Mal's not there. Yeah. Taking up all the players away from him and stuff. Um, what, like, before we move on from Mal, one, one question I had. So Don Ferner came out in, you know, at some point during the year talking about the influence he had and what an important signing there was. He, he likened it to Arthur Beetson coming to the Roosters in the early 70s. But since then, in, in our era, can you think of a more influential signing by any club or anything even comparable? I shudder to think where they'd be, if they'd be, yeah. without that signing. Because uh, I, I really struggle to think of a signing that had the impact that him going to Canberra had. This goes to show you, he's a generational talent. It's like, mm. you know, go back to the NBA all the time. He's like the LeBron yeah. of the era, like 1980, when he came out as a young kid. It was mm. like, look at this guy. Something else. GI. Yeah. It's freak, freakish, to quote Joey. <laughs> it's a freak athlete. On the other side of things was Terry Lamb, who at, at that stage was also, it was widely viewed that he was going to be retiring at the end of the year. I've got such... I used to hate Terry Lamb. I right? hated him so much. But I also... Admired him, and now I love him. Right? Yeah, yeah, I've had had the same uh, kind of path with Terry Lamb. But this, the idea of a guy, you know, this this chunky little necklace terrier refusing to train, right? <laughs> so like guys that beat the system, I love. Like, yeah. so he goes, "Look, I play better if I don't train." Mm. Like, okay, don't train then. <laughs> so it's like, what would have, how good would he been if he did train? Or would it have hurt him? You know? Yeah, yeah. Some guys just they're better off not training. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. like <laughs> that just made me laugh so yeah. much. But for all that, for for the, for the non-training, for the oddest shaped body of like a <laughs> rugby league player, like he was like he was quick, like he was, you yeah, know, I mean, yeah. renowned as the king of backing up and and all the rest of it. I like, love that part about him too. But like, yeah. I would call him uh, a footballer, footballer's footballer. Yeah. Where it's like that bloke's a footballer, mm. Jason Smith, guys that just get it done and they have time and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, God, he's a good player, and you know. Compared to the dirty, mm. get it, win at all cost type guy. Like, yeah, yeah, amazing career. So in the end, he he broke his arm in 1994, which actually probably helped to prolong the career. He miss, missed much of that season, um, came back late, uh, and from there, any talk of of retiring was was put to bed. Maybe if they had gone on to win the comp, yeah, would have been a different story. But it gave him that other year and the chance to to finish the career right. Obviously, he came back in '96 eventually, which we'll discuss uh, in some detail. Uh, later in our series. But in the wake of the early season talk about Terry Lamb potentially retiring, there was a lot of that same goodwill that, that Mao got and a lot of reflection over his career and his achievements uh, and a lot of talk about him and Cliff Lyons, who was in a similar stage of his career, how they were perpetually overshadowed for, for the rep scene, uh, but that didn't diminish like the, you know, the, height, the scope of their achievements and their place in the game. Exactly, though. It was the era of the club man. Mm. I mean, they, they both had a couple of shots. He he actually made himself unavailable, like, from pretty early in the piece. Like, you know, in 88, he was, or 87, 88, he was saying he didn't want to play rep 40, you know. It's um, odd, isn't it? But look at his look at his career achievements. So, Dalian 5 8 of the year, 83, 84, 86, 87, and then three straight from 91 to 93. He won the Dally M in 83, the Rothmans in 84. So in that era of, of Lewis and, and Kenny, he yeah. was still like a dominant, dominant player. Yeah, amazing. Um, I, I love Brett Kenny's actual talk about Terry Lamb. He said that he, he studied his game like closely you know, and knew how good he was and said, he rarely moves wider than 20 metres in from touch. That's how he's always where the action is and that's how he's still playing at this age. Like, very kind of... Uh, on the money way to think about how Terry Lamb played. You're saying he didn't cover that many yards. Yeah. 
but right. he, he he played in the middle and right. you know did all his damage there. It felt like he was in everything. Yeah, you, you want him on your side, wouldn't you? Mm. You want him anywhere except the golf course. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, funnily enough, uh, in '94, when when he was very much almost like the the coach on field sort of stage of his career, where you know it was a very inexperienced Canterbury team. He was the old hardhead. Coach Chris Anderson, assistant coach Steve Folks, both players that he played with and experienced great success with, they actually had a, a weekly golf game uh, on the Tuesday where they discuss, you know, the previous week's game and you know, the, the, yeah. the game to come. And oh, you'd, you'd love to be on the back of that golf cup, <laughs> wouldn't you? Just make sure you're not slowing down play in front of him. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so so he was the the you know the old hard head experienced guy in the team. There was a lot of talk that he needed to do less work. You know, Steve Mortimer... Uh, I mean, on field, not... Uh, but yeah, Steve Mortimer came out and said that, you know, by you need to slow down, you need to hand off some responsibility, you know. Um, you had, you know, Craig Polamana coming through and uh, it, I, I just don't think it was in Terry Lamb's nature to be able to, no. to do that. And Canterbury actually... When all the talk was that they couldn't win without Terry Lamb and, and the stats up to that point had showed that they couldn't, they actually went on a fairly good winning streak without him in the 10 or so weeks he was out. So that was kind of showing you that the team that they were building. Watching the grand final, which we'll cover later on, I uh, was blown away by how many good players they had too. Canterbury squad. Yeah. Well, let's talk about a few more of those. Um, Even got like Jason Williams. Yeah. I, I, it was like a, like a, he was like a really good finisher. He was the classic like brain explosion guy would do dumb things yeah. but like had that you know like flair definitely expected yeah they got daryl halligan in that year from north left north in acrimonious circumstances when has anyone ever left north in any <laughs> other way um so north recruited jason taylor from west that year or that off season and so even Dar- even though daryl halligan had been the um, leading point scorer the three years prior uh, it it was unlikely that there was going to be a first grade spot for him because um, they had Sean Hoppy coming in. Yeah, they had Jason Taylor now who could do the kicking. So he fought and fought for his release. Came over to Canterbury. Best um, movies of his career. Yeah, absolutely. And you kind of like when when you think of Daryl Halligan, all you think about is his goal kicking, and you know he was like kind of a pretty slow, serviceable at best kind of... I used to really root for him as a winger. Yeah. Every time he scored, and he was quite a good finisher, big and strong. i got to say, watching some of the highlights from 94, like, you forget that, like, he could play. Yeah. You know, he wasn't just a goal kicker, even though he was primarily a goal kicker. It's just when you're not fast as a winger, yeah. people don't rate you. Mm. Uh, staying with the backs, you had you had the Darren Smith saga play out all year where he, he you know, basically said that he wasn't going to sign with Canterbury in 95. Signed that letter of intent with the crushers. Uh, there was, you know, various talk that he was going to end up at Parramatta uh, before, you know, finally going to Brisbane. Um, what purpose is a letter of intent in rugby league? <laughs> there is absolutely no reason to do them. So Canterbury took a, a pretty harsh stance on the matter and, like, he played very little part in the team throughout the back half of 94. He, he got on in, in the semi final against Canberra, I think, but uh, wasn't used in the grand final. Um, you know, spend a lot of time in reserves. I, I just think it's a weird stance that clubs do that with some players and not others. Yeah, agreed. And it's a very Chris Anderson thing to do yeah. as well. Chris Anderson got out of his coffin, his Dracula coffin <laughs> on, on, the, on the wrong side that day. <laughs> um, it's the, the the Smith saga, which um, 
played out in, in the press for most of the year, led to one of my favorite quotes of the year, which, which came from Warren Ryan, who was talking about it. Uh, and he said, when you're offside at Canterbury, you're offside. And, and, and I think as a global authority on being offside, <laughs> Warren Ryan's words should be hated. <laughs> yeah, if he if he's ruining them for their. Uh... <laughs> um, but it's funny that at the start of the year, Darren Smith was you know in the Queensland Origin team, uh, if not likely a, a very keen contender for a kangaroo spot. His brother Jason was battling for a first grade spot. By the end of the year, those fortunes had been completely reversed. Yeah. I just wanted to talk about Chris Anderson for a bit. He's, as I said, really funny bloke. Um, underrated coach. Uh, record record to die for. Just ended yeah. ended badly. Yeah, yeah. But you know, again, that that first half record speaks for itself. Something interesting about uh, Chris Anderson as a coach that that came at. It was a Steve Mortimer column that year. He was talking about Anderson as a coach and Canterbury's style, and he said, "You know, as someone who played." played with Chris Anderson. Make no mistake, at Canterbury Bankstown, the year of 1980 and the year of 1984 were very distinct. Um, first question, <laughs> why don't we give them names, these, these two eras? You know, I think maybe it could really help clarify it in our mind what exactly he's talking about. <laughs> um, but he went on to say that, um, you know, the, the premierships in, in each of those eras were, were very different and Chris Anderson played in both of those eras. Which I think means something. When a, a couple of months ago we were talking about the 95 squad and you asked if it was a Dogs of War or an Entertainers and I said it was a bit of a tweener. Yeah, yeah. You can see that with the 94 squad as well. It's it's a real mix of... <laughs> but it's saying that most coaches want to have yeah, a mix yeah, yeah. I mean, of it's, defensive it's, attack. It's, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, in some ways it goes without saying, but it does show you the character of that team. Like I think the balance yeah. was really good. Well, that, that's what the um, Raiders were. Yeah. Lomax and Pongio, et cetera. You, yeah, I mean, definitely they had that edge. But when I think of that Raiders team, I, I think one to seven, you know, like yeah. basically. But, but let, let's talk about some of those young guns coming through, starting with, with the, the Filthy Four. We'll call them the Filthy Three because McCracken, as your letter showed, was, was a well-established uh, <laughs> class player. But he was a class player. Oh, I just really love him. Like the best elements of the, the classic power center and yeah. just the strike. You know, like the the speed, like you think of McCracken, you think of handful. Mm, yeah, absolute handful. Yeah. Big uh, gr- friend, great Barnet on him. Beautiful Barnet. <laughs> uh, let, let's stay on the Barnet talk. Jim Dimmick, ninety four, immaculate flat top. Oh yeah, Bruce Bolin. Yeah, um, loved love Jim Dimmick's ninety four look. Another question: Read Jim Dimmick. Well, one of my favorite players of all time. Has there been a better exponent of the basketball pass? Than, than <laughs> I reckon he was. I reckon he was. Q and A was Michael Jordan. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but uh, yeah, loved it. And, and when was the last time you heard a commentator say basketball pass? <laughs> like, well, no one's doing it anymore. No, they they used to literally like push it from the chest. Yeah, <laughs> Gene Wiles used to. It was a good era, the basketball pass era. Now it's hold the ball in one hand yeah. and, and sort of yeah around the corner. Mm. But yeah, so Jim Dimmick played a, a lot of that season at five eight with Terry Lamb injured. Um, God, he's a good player. Yeah, yeah, class. Yeah, a footballer's footballer. Yeah, and another one of those guys that you you kind of forget how good he was until you actually go back and start watching him. Yeah, and we said it in our Hall of Fame discussions, uh, underrated by, by rep selectors. Yeah, yeah, even though he got a few goes, but 
should have had more. And, and a lot of competition. So I wouldn't say he was necessarily un, unlucky, but it wouldn't have been out of place on yeah. that, that kangaroo squad. Yeah. yeah. And, and in fact, his old uh, South teammates, Terry Hill and Jim Sedaris, the three of them had kind of pledged to get on that plane together and, and Dimmick was the, the one that missed out. Shocker. Mm. Um, another pl- the, the other member of that quartet, Dean Pay, who'd been on the scene since 89. You know, he was 25 at the time. Uh but you Loved know, re- really broke out that year, made his made his rep debut, and you know had everyone you know, blocker enthusing about what a you know tough forward he was. When you hear the old trope, no nonsense, mm. that's Dan Pay. Yeah, yeah, and the classic like born thirty five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guy, you know? <laughs> he made a uh, web kick like a young man <laughs> in the face. But uh, he built that bond with Stuart on the ninety four tour. They become besties, mm. roommates, roomies, as it were. But yeah, I I really liked what Phil Gould had to say about um Dean. This was this was when it was, Dean Pay was getting into that Origin team, and uh, Phil Gould said that. So he was Canterbury coach at '89 when Dean Pay made his debut, and he said we were playing South, and they had that pack, you know, Ian Roberts, Les Davidson, you know, David Boyle, etc. Uh, you know, a really tough pack, and you know, he threw Dean Pay then Dean Payne as a 19 year old, and Dean Pay laconic just came off and said, you know what, it wasn't that tough out there, coach, you know. And <laughs> leading up to the Origin debut, he was a bit nervous. And after the game, Phil Gould asked him how it was, and he was like, you know what, it wasn't that tough out there, coach. <laughs> <laughs> when he was on the blues side, I felt confident. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to talk about Craig Polamana a, a bit more, who I, I really like as a player. The, the, the classic thing that I hated him at the time, and if I hated you at that era, it probably meant you were a good player. I hated him too. Uh, mainly because of the name. I hated the hyphenated name. Yeah. You know, it kind of works. Yeah. Well, he did have a rah rah background. That's what I mean. Yeah. That's what it felt like. It's like, no. (laughs) Um, But he's a good, tough player. Yeah. Um, The funny thing about he he got, he was injured um, early in the year and and then had to fight his way back to first grade because Kevin Moore came in and was holding down the spot for about 10 weeks. So he spent much of that season in reserve grade. Kevin Moore was playing his last year then. Um, after bouncing around at Canterbury, you know, playing mainly reserves for for about a decade, he actually had an offer to go to Manly, but um, decided not to take it up because he had a job in the area. Obviously, there's the family connection there. Uh, it just made me think of that. That was the last bastion of of that era of player. Yeah, the player where where they're playing is a lifestyle thing as much as anything. Else. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm happy to you know be club captain, play. 200 grams of reserve grade, the odd first when, you know, I get the opportunity. And it's kind of admirable, but I would have liked to see him throw his hand somewhere else. Yeah, he was a good player at times. Yeah, yeah I think, um, the, I can't remember if it was um, Glenn Hughes or Stephen Hughes that w- was kind of that same mould and like... All the Hughes. Yeah. <laughs> but like, I think... Who said Corey? Corey, said Corey, Corey played, yeah. But yeah, like, reserve grade captain for like 10 years and... I'd like to know where we're at with feuds in Canterbury. Like, mm. the Hughes is in, are they out? Which yeah. ones are in, which ones are out? The Anderson clan. Yeah, have, have you read uh, Graham Hughes's book? Because it, it seems some of those scars are still still quite fresh. So. <laughs> um, but do you, do you have anything else to say about the Canterbury squad? Just that I, th- I was surprised at how, I mean, they weren't in the same class as Canberra due to... Canberra's magic salary cap uh, <laughs> work, but I thought they had a really good squad. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's funny because that 95 team, like, I always felt they came out of nowhere. And, I mean, they did that year. They finished seventh or whatever it was. 
But I mean, minor premiers in '93, grand finalists in '94. Yeah, yeah. Like that, they were they were just mainly in uh, Canterbury in the mid '90s. The success ratio was crazy. Mm. But I, I love guys like Simon Gillies and like yeah. w- uh, Darren Britt. Yeah, um, roaming slang these days, but uh, they're good toilers. You know, I, I yeah. like the good hard toiler. Yeah, having you know Marty Bella in that team as well in '94. I didn't realize Craig Smith was was there in '94. I didn't know either. No, yeah. lifting the knees. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but so so anyway, so that is this week's episode. We'll be back to d- discuss the the on field season uh, next week. Um, for anyone who is wondering why we're two weeks into a, a Super League series and haven't mentioned Super League once, this this just goes to show you how in depth we're going to get here. So uh, <laughs> there, there's a lot of ground to cover. So I, I hope you're enjoying the ride as much as we are. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details.